love seeing complex female characters on screen, you've come to the right place. Here's writer-director Harry Whitliffe on her new film, True Things. I'm proud of promoting women who are strong and weak all at the same time, because I think there's this like box that we're put into. It's either we're weak and we're vulnerable or we're strong and we're strident. And it's like, we can be both. We can flip within the hour. I also chat to actor Ruth Wilson about playing this layered character in True Things. And because it's a brilliant week for female-directed films, I'll also be chatting to the director of Marina, Antonetta Kuzianovic. Plus, stay tuned for an exclusive interview with Wendy Lloyd about her new research into criticism in the age of Me Too. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello and welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith. And in this episode, we'll be discussing two captivating films that come from the female gaze, True Things and Murina. First up, True Things is director Harry Whitliffe's stunning follow-up to the drama Only You. She's joined today by the film's star and producer, Ruth Wilson, who's been fantastic in everything from Dark River to series like Luther, Mrs Wilson and The Affair. I think True Things might be her most exciting role yet. She plays Kate, a bored young woman in a seaside town who has an enigmatic relationship with an ex-convict known as Blonde, who's played by Tom Burke. Here's Ruth and Harry. Well, Harry and Ruth, welcome to Girls on Film. Hello. Well, welcome back to Harry. I think you came up to Manchester, didn't you, for Only You? It was lovely to have you up there. Welcome back. Did, yes, yes. And Ruth, we spoke loads, but you haven't actually been on the pod before, so a special welcome. No, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, congrats to you both on True Things. As you know, I'm a big, big fan of this film. Um, Ruth, let's start with you, because I know that you were the first one to discover the novel this was based on. Can you talk us through how it all evolved from there? Yeah, I was doing a play a while ago um, called Anna Christie at the Donmar Warehouse with Jude Law. And he was starting to get his production company were being sent material. And this book landed on his table and it was uh, or landed on his lap. And it was called True Things About Me by Deborah K. Davis. And he read it and he said, Ruth, I think there's something in this, but I'm not quite sure. Will you give it a read? So I read it and I loved it. And I thought, yeah, there's I've not read anything like this. And I've certainly not seen anything like this. I haven't hadn't felt like I'd seen anything like that on screen before. This was eight years ago, so it was pretty sort of very subjective female stories like Fleabag or I May Destroy You. But this was so eight years ago, and I thought, wow, this is really amazing through the lens of this woman's experience in this very specific period of a romance, like the initial throes of a romance. And I thought it was just really forensic and specific, really funny and honest, rawly, like very honest, a very truthful account of how it feels to be in that in the throes of that obsessional love. Forensic is such a good word, actually. And I feel like this is kind of antithesis of the kind of rom-com stuff that we've been fed over many years as women, you know, at these kind of fictional accounts of romances. And in reality, Harry, obviously it's a lot more complicated. And often you don't know yourself whether you should actually be 
in this relationship or not. And I felt like that was a big part of what this explored. Harry, can you talk to me a little bit from your perspective of what appealed to you in the story from perhaps from that side? Rose, for me, it was, yeah, it was the atmosphere of the book and the feeling of the book and how internal it was that I really liked. And there were elements of the plot that I didn't think would transfer to the screen. So I just kind of took everything that I connected with or or, or that Ruth and I connected with and making it really subjective and really unjudgmental. And I think it is that making it so much from her point of view and in the period of time where you don't really know someone. So just we only know what she knows. So she she doesn't know him that well. And I think it's really interesting how you sort of have this, you know, deep sort of emotional and physical connection with someone you, you don't know, like you don't know their parents, you don't know, you don't know anything about them, really. So you sort of you get to know them on a really intimate level. And then on the other hand, you don't know anything about them. So I guess that was my something of my experience that I, I find really interesting. And that and that's the way I came upon it. I don't know anything about you. I don't know anything about you. My hobbies are reading and listening to music. I like drawing. Really? Yeah. Do you have a girlfriend? No, I don't have a girlfriend. Do you do this sort of thing often? You're interrogating me, Miss Parkin. Have you ever killed anybody? It's only in <laughs> four months. You're funny. Am I? You know you are. It's definitely true, isn't it? That kind of early intimacy, especially in your 20s that you have with people. And it's kind of a weirdly artificial thing when you barely know somebody. Ruth, talk to me about your experience in filming this and how you were keen to get that kind of intimacy across with Harry and your amazing and, in fact, largely female crew. Yeah, I think, well, Harry and I, in development of the script, we wanted everything to be through the lens of this character of Kate. So it had to, everything had to be seen through her eyes and her experience We wanted the audience to sort of feel what she felt, the kind of energy, like obsessional love feels, it fills your whole body. It takes over your mind and your emotions and it's chemical as well as emotional and physical. So we wanted the audience to feel that. So the camera, we wanted the camera to be very up close and personal with Kate. We wanted to follow her emotions and feelings. And that was in the writing too. It was in the music as well. It was in the way that we compose the music for example you know realize that most composition of music sort of follows what the narrative story is and is kind of following what the audience is feeling in terms of oh wow she's going into a car park she's having sex in a car park that's really dangerous but actually in her mind she was having a great time so we wanted the music to reflect how Kate was feeling not necessarily how the audience are feeling for her and that was really interesting it created this amazing sort of conflict on the in the filming and in the editing and in the film at the end. It's like what the audience is feeling about her against what she's feeling herself. It's a really interesting process, that being really subjective. It's hard, actually, to achieve. And being inside the character, for me, it meant doing very little as an actor. It meant actually doing less and just being observed. Because, again, it's it's about judgment, like Harry said. It's If you are judging a character, you're kind of stepping outside of her and watching and placing ideas on top of her. Whereas if you're being inside the moment, you're just being and being observed. So actually, subjectivity is quite difficult in that way, actually, uh, to create, I think. I think as well, when you're in that situation, it makes you very, you're very in the moment. Because all you're thinking about really is how that, how the last date 
went and how the next day is going to happen. So you're very much kind of like just moved from move to move. You're not you're not thinking ahead and you're not thinking behind. I guess that's why it's so addictive in a way. It just sort of completely takes you out of yourself. The book had, it was written like a series of confessions. So it didn't feel like a strung together narrative necessarily. It mm. felt like moments and thoughts of this character. So we wanted to recreate that on the screen a bit, that it wasn't a sort of direct narrative or plot driven piece. It was more emotionally led from her experience in this relationship with this man and how it makes her feel from moment to moment. I feel like as audiences, we we desperately need these kind of stories, which are basically tackling realism in a way that is is, is challenging and exciting and different rather than being fed some kind of well-worn formulaic narrative. Ruth mentioned that it can be quite difficult. Harry, what, what were the challenges for you with this? I know from your previous films and from this one, you, you're brilliant at kind of busting stereotypes and bucking them all. But what are the challenges in, in doing that? Yeah, I guess it's just not relying on... Um cliche and consistently when I'm writing kind of putting myself as much as of myself as I can into Kate sort of driving through on a kind of emotional level of where she's feeling and where she's at and what she's driving towards I guess what I realized actually in the edit is that she never lets up until she won't let up until she's got him or she's decided she doesn't want him so there's a kind of like relentless drive and I think in the writing, I really wanted this beat of energy to go through it. And I remember Ruth talked a lot. We, we talked a lot about the humour and um, wanting it to be funny. And also for me, finding a tone that was not sitcom-y, but that had like a playfulness and a sense of humour to the piece was tricky. And I really I really struggled with that. And and I think he was making uh, Kate, the, the humour comes from Kate. And she, she's amazing as well as she's, you know, troubled and difficult and bored and unmotivated. She's also kind of the funniest, cleverest person in the film, you know. Do you have any other questions? What are you doing for lunch? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I usually just eat a sandwich in the kitchen. They don't give us very long. Sounds worse than bloody prison. <laughs> you want to go out? Sit on a bench? Well, I will keep that in mind. Thank you. But that is also one of the things that Blonde sees her in, so he's a step towards her be- becoming the person she really is. We found it was interesting, the idea of... Because I think what you're saying about what's difficult is that Mm. I think people don't want to... They veer away and producers, writers, everyone, they kind of fear telling the truth in a way, Um, being really honest. They want to kind of sort of show up, like cover it up or make it more simple or make it more straightforward or make it more fun or not really touch, uh, just touch the surface of it without going really deep into it. And so I think that's always... A problem and that's all of us having to deal with that and face that and sort yeah. of dip deeper and be really honest about what that person is and what that experience is like but the humor was really interesting because I felt it it wasn't about life is funny and it's dark places too and this character I felt she saw the world with an acute observation like a really honest and it was funny at times how she could observe the world at the same time being at the will of it and being sort of victim of it too. So I felt that was really important to try and get across that she saw quite clearly actually and didn't necessarily take herself that seriously when perhaps she should have done a bit more. But that was, we found that humour came not just in sort of her inner 
brain, but it was all in her imagination and in her humour, in her sort of way she saw the world. And that reflected in the music again and in the way it's shot and what we see. So suddenly everything, what Ashley was doing as the DP and what she would find, like the cat in the window, or it's also reflective of Kate. And same with the music became that it gets more sort of discombobulated as it goes on. And that was, again, about Kate's imagination and reflective of her brain and humour and wildness. So I think it was finding those things within it that could reflect that. I've said to you before, but what I loved about it, it kept me guessing as I was trying to get to grips with this character and, and to find out more about her. And I was constantly intrigued by the layers that were being lifted and the more I was finding out about her. Harry, when you were working with Ruth and preparing for the shoot, um, how much of Ruth did you start to sort of put in it um, as you were developing it? <laughs> I put a lot of Ruth in it sort of during the writing. I, I watched a lot of interviews with Ruth and sort of um, there were certain things that I didn't end up doing, but I kind of love taking as much as I can of the actor and putting it in there, probably not particularly telling them, but uh, we did talk about Ruth. There's a lot of aspects of Ruth's personality that I don't think we see on screen very much. Like she's just based very sort of like quite, you know, ferocious, kind of grounded people. And actually there's a kind of lightness and a vulnerability and um um to Ruth that I, I think was quite a challenge for Ruth to kind of reveal as well. I had to really kind of like go, no, you know, keep with it. it it's great, you know. So it's fun kind of, it was fun to force her out of her comfort zone in a way. Yeah, little things like uh, there was an interview where she just kept doing this with her nose, which I really liked. Can you, <laughs> Sorry, can you explain radio. that for the listeners? <laughs> yeah, pressing her nose with her finger, just touching her nose. And little things like that, they kind of went into the script and they didn't necessarily get into the movie in, in a literal way, but there was just little things about Ruth. And I guess like you know, the reason the character is amazing in, and complex is, is because, you know, Ruth and um, Tom are both really complicated, g- clever, complex people. So even when you're writing a character that seems straightforward, that part of them is always going to kind of drip through in an interesting way. And whatever's not like the character, I think you, you mix it all together and it helps them to become three-dimensional. It certainly does. Ruth, any comment from you on that? You know, we spent a few years sort of developing the film together and so that was sort of sitting down and anecdoting with each other and telling our stories and getting to know each other and I certainly felt during it there was bits of my humour and my slight clown coming out it was hard to begin with I felt really exposed because it's exposing being seen properly and that's I suppose what the film is asking to do as well is for everyone to be seen in a sort of non-judgmental way and you know, your own judgments of yourself or what you want to put across and suddenly you've got to let go of that. So, yeah, I found it initially quite exposing. And certainly that first week in the office, I found that quite hard. But then once we got into the flow of drive of the story with Tom and the rest of it, I actually really, it was really liberating and I really enjoyed it. And I felt really free. It was a journey for me throughout that. But I learned to trust myself just to be observed rather than to try and do Come here always like this. Like what? So you're gonna rescue him, are you? You need to find your tribe. You're my tribe. I thought you might have called. I've been busy. You just disappeared. Don't know what's wrong with you. I think men find you difficult. That's what. Susan. No, it's important she knows these things. She's all on her own. It feels like a very strong 
female-led collaboration here. Harry, would you like to speak to that a little bit more in terms of your heads of department and the other people that you all worked with? You know, the main collaborator was Ashley, the DP, who was was female. The thing I liked about Ashley's work was that she's really sort of fascinated by women, I think, and she'd made some really interesting short films and music videos that I loved, one of which had um, a woman, she's sort of shaving her legs and things in it, and uh, we had this scene with with Ruth shaving her legs, and that that was kind of the clincher for me. I kind of loved, loved the way she'd sort of so intimately observed that. I certainly think it sort of helped in a practical way, you know, having a, a woman being observing intimate scenes. And also, I, I guess we just, you know, it's not um, a mysterious thing. We, we observe men and men observe women because we are women. So, you know, observing kind of Tom coming out. I love the moment where Tom comes out in his, he comes out of the bathroom in his towel to talk to her. And it just, you know, I observe my partner coming out of the bathroom in a towel, that kind of male energy you know, so it's just, yeah, it's just we're women observing men. So it's not a magical thing or a mysterious thing. It's just, it's just the way it is. And it's fun to portray that and investigate it. And I think that Ashley is, wasn't necessarily feminine, but it may, because I'm sure lots of male DPs do this too, but she was incredibly intuitive with the emotion of the scene and with Kate. So she really became, we all molded together as the film went on, but Certainly she became very sort of, yeah, intuitive about what I was doing when and what Kate was feeling when. And she'd move the camera accordingly. So you can see the camera does move in a very fluid way, but it moves in a sort of emotional, energised way. It's with my what I'd be feeling at the time. And Ashley really understood that. And she understood being inside that experience. So, for example, we found a moment in the, there's a bit when we're by the lake and we're, kissing by the lake or he gives me he gives me the watch actually and there's a bit where our fingers entwine which the camera moves to find that which we were doing naturally and maybe the camera wouldn't otherwise grasp it but Ashley was following what we were doing and then of course Harry put that in the edit and mixed it with everything else so I just felt Ashley was really kind of the three of us worked very closely together. It did create a sort of real reflex in the movement of the camera, I think. It sounds like a comfortable environment because I understand that obviously that's not always the case. And that's why intimacy coordinators are hopefully more common now because historically, you know, people have not felt always felt comfortable on camera, right? I mean, I think Harry and Ashley and I were very open with each other and it's intimacy coordinators have become really very useful at this time because we, people weren't having the conversations before. They just weren't discussing <laughs> sex scenes. So it would just be a sort of a scene in your schedule that you were kind of waiting for to come, you know, having to do on the day. And and at the best, you were kind of uncomfortable. At the worst, it could be exploited or it could feel really bad. So actually having those discussions prior to filming, getting everyone on the same page, people expressing where their boundaries are, what they feel uncomfortable with, what the director expressing what they want from it. It's actually really useful just to have those discussions. And what I felt for me as well, having an our intimacy coordinator, she was brilliant in that I really wanted to be directing the scenes and I and I, I sort of wanted to be controlling the scenes. And she totally understood that and was very much kind of by my side. But for me, it was like a support as well that I've got somebody there that can make sure that I'm not doing anything wrong. And I don't know, it's like a sort of advocate for me to go, no, I think Harry was respectful in that moment. Because for the director, it's quite nerve wracking that you feel like, I want to be highly respectful, but I also really want what I want. And how do I, you know, how do I kind of negotiate that? Being sensitive to the actor's needs and yet at the same time 
putting them into uncomfortable situations it's not easy so it's quite nice to have somebody there as well to talk about like practicalities like what underwear are we going to use and do we need a cushion to put between their hips and you know so she kind of sorts all that out for me and gives the actors another person I don't know just to prepare in a way just I think talking about that practical stuff Ruth is probably quite helpful as well in in a sort of just way of getting in ready for the scene it makes it practical. It doesn't make it sort of anything yeah. but that. So in a way, it takes it demystifies the whole scene and it makes it means that you can play it. And I think as a result, you'll have much more interesting, dynamic, specific sex scenes because yeah. actually people are going to feel safer in the moment to do different things. They'll be covered and you know their boundaries are sort of talked about and everyone will feel safer. So it means that yeah. you'll get better much better stuff out of it. I was thinking that, yeah, better results all round. Yeah, it's yeah. a wonderful thing. Let me ask you both <laughs> to wrap up. Is there anything else about this film that you're particularly proud of from a feminist perspective? Harry, let me come to you first. I'm proud of promoting women who are strong and weak all at the same time, because I think there's this like box that we're put into. It's either we're weak and we're vulnerable or we're strong and we're strident. And it's like, we can be both. We can flip within the hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're everything and uh, I don't think we need to be put into a box like Kate is neither you know she is strong she's also vulnerable she's she's weak she's clever she's stupid she's everything and I think we're really used to seeing that in men and we really fa- have a difficult time of accepting or judging women on the screen um, in that way and I would agree I think it's the complexity of Kate and the honesty of what women can be and be everything and nothing at the same time I just think that's it's really great I mean we it it is watching her you sort of feel oh she is seemingly passive and shy and weak and doesn't really have any drives but no she kind of gets what she wants I don't know I think I'm really proud of that too I'm proud of showing how complex we are you should both be very proud I think it is a film that a lot of our listeners are going to love and it's really going to resonate with them and I think it's really important forward stride for women in film so congratulations again to you both thank you so much thanks Anna for having thanks me. Anna thank you for supporting the film yeah. we really appreciate it oh well do come back on Girls on Film with your next projects both of you either separately or together you're always welcome it's lovely to see you both that was True Things writer-director Harry Woodcliffe and its star and producer Ruth Wilson True Things is in UK cinemas now next up I'm joined by film critic broadcaster and academic Wendy Lloyd Wendy Lloyd, welcome back to Girls on Films. So great to be back. Absolutely delighted to have you back. And you've been with us before talking about films and reviewing films, and obviously you're an esteemed critic. But this time I'm really keen to talk to you about your masters, which you've been doing, which really plays into the art of criticism. Tell us more. It's been interesting, this, because obviously, as you and I, Anna, see all the time, there's so much debate and we see it in the Oscars in terms of what's being nominated these days, what's winning awards, that there really is a recognition now. And obviously, it's courtesy of your Me Too, your Time's Up, your BLM, a real recognition that we have to scrutinise how films are made, who's making them, whose stories are being told. You know, all of this now is under consideration. And I think that's obviously, it's such a great plus and we're really seeing a fantastic change. What interested me while I was doing my master's was I don't think the same scrutiny has been given to critics. So I take it that you spoke directly to 
some of our peers, obviously not naming them. How did people respond when you asked to speak to them about this? Well, I was really pleased that um, people were really keen to talk to me. Typically, in the arts, in the liberal arts, people were very positive about the idea of things getting more diverse and there being a wider range of perspectives. But I think that what became very telling and what this um, research was about unpicking was once the conversation started to sort of dig into things and unpack what that really meant, I think it's fair to say that what I did find was that there was an element of kind of conditional support for diversity by certain critics. Again, it's understandable because obviously change that's going to threaten their careers directly it's going to be something that they will find a way to kind of argue against and defend against. And so it's not surprising. And I don't, I think it's very important that I point out that, you know, none of this was ever about sort of identifying, you know, individuals and saying and calling anybody out. What I'm really interested in here is looking at the structure of film criticism, looking at how it relates to its history and how the fact is, is that now that we are needing to navigate different concerns, we need to talk about different things we need to speak about films differently and different voices need to be t- talking about these different stories. So it was really about just a beginning of trying to unpick where the kind of feeling is right now and what really is a discipline we can do to sort of move things forward. So having spoken to people and sort of challenge some of their biases, perhaps, unconscious or otherwise. What do you think can be done? Did you come away with any kind of positive takeaways about ways forward? Well, I think one of the you know the central issues which kind of underpins both who's talking about film and how we talk about it is the fact that really when we're talking about these the, the influence of these these social movements and what they want us to be talking about they want us to be looking at you know representation sociopolitical issues in film and kind of scrutinize it on that level and the reality is is that is directly at odds with just saying, I'm going to look at this film and consider its artistic merit. And the issue there then is, of course, well, then what do we, how do we navigate this? Because previously there has been an assumption, and I say previously, but really to a, a large extent, it still exists. And that was what I found, you know, in the interviews and, and then assessing it all afterwards. There is an assumption that the aesthetic concerns of film should always take priority. And my one example for that that really we struggle with as critics is that if you see a sort of questionable representation on screen um, that really needs to be discussed, if you avoid it and just say, well, I'm just going to look at it on artistic merit, we can't really do that anymore. Wendy, you came on the show before and talked a little bit about Red Sparrow. Would that be an appropriate example for what you're talking about here? Yeah, that would be a great example, not least because I did have to wade through the reviews at the time and really kind of scrutinise them. And it was very clear that, you know, what was causing an issue for critics was, on the one hand, sort of really kind of wanting to call out some of the problems with this film starring Jennifer Lawrence and, you know, there were lots of issues with hardcore violence, um, some very questionable sort of sexual aggressive scenes on screen. And critics were really having to kind of try and um, 
contextualize that really in the idea that this was a kind of thrilling drama and that it was a kind of spy thriller. And so likening it to things like Bond or liking it to other kind of spy thrillers at the time, what you saw was that there was this uncomfortable struggle between these artistic discussions and then saying, oh, but that's probably not really very good in this day and age, is it? So, you know, that that really kind of did, did show itself up. I was told to take a man to a hotel. They said he was an enemy of the state. Take off your dress. And then exchange, my mother would get the doctor she needed. Instead, they cut his throat. There could be no witnesses. So they gave me a choice. Die or become a sparrow. That's an interesting example because for me, Actually, that was a case where it overtook my enjoyment of the film and affected my reaction to it so badly that I was judging it more negatively. And I think that's a very honest reaction. And I think that's part of me I should be bringing to my job as a critic. Absolutely. I think that, yes. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's it's true that I suppose there would be for each critic, there's going to be certain films where it is, there's a lot more ambivalence in play. And for that one, similarly, I mean, I picked up on that one because what surprised me was that I did see an interesting array of criticism for that film at the time. And some of it was people kind of wanted to kind of avoid kind of like really pinpointing any problems and, and being very jokey about it, very flippant. There was a lot of flippant humour used in a lot of the uh, the reviews, which interestingly, I think people would be less comfortable using now. So when we're thinking that that's only, what, about four or five years ago, I think we've moved on again as critics, certainly in terms of recognising we can't make flip jokes about stuff anymore. I personally think, you know, that what this presents us with is the need to have a conversation about how we prioritise things, because I think the tendency is, and not least by the people who it's in their interest to defend the status quo. Those those people will defend the idea that we just kind of bolt on the concerns of these social events and movements, is that we bolt those sort of issues on and carry on as before. And really from the kind of conversations that took place and the way we sort of really got down to the nitty gritty of kind of critiquing film in these conversations, it showed that I don't think we can do that. We can't just bolt Me Too, Time's Up and BLM onto the side of what we've done in the past. We need to really sort of say, how do we do this now? And how do we make sure that we are stepping back when we need to and letting others speak? And it's it's a whole array of quite complicated things. But I think we're in a really great place to start addressing those things. It's so interesting talking to you about this, because obviously, as a critic and a feminist, these are the kind of balances that I'm trying to strike in my writing. As you say, it's not easy, but you never want to be a kind of tokenistic, OK, here's the moment where I address the problem with this film politically, and then let's carry on. But at the same time, uh, you know, as I'm sure you'll agree, often it's wonderful to be able to enjoy a piece of work that you still essentially have a problem with in, in other respects. Yeah. How do you as a critic get that balance? Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that. I think I'm, maybe because I've been doing this research, I think I probably take the line that if I do find it problematic in some way, then I'm very careful about how I talk about it artistically. Because of that very fact, I don't want it to sound like we can kind of just park something, chat elsewhere and move on. But I totally agree with you. Is It's really hard to do because you can't, you don't also want to go the other end of the spectrum and just be... <laughs> 
real curmudgeon about everything. It's very hard, but I think that's the point, is that we all are developing our language here. All of us, whatever our, whatever social group or category we might consider ourselves to come from, and whatever personal experiences are informing our criticism, and the reality is, is it does. It was interesting, some critics really didn't want to believe that we should ever bring ourselves into our criticism. At the same time, we're obviously agonizing and struggling to kind of deliberate over the subjective versus the objective. So, you know, this it was interesting in, in terms of how messy it all got. And I think that's the point, you know, that the, the issue you're talking about there is one that all of us as critics, we should be wrestling with, we should be recognizing with that we can't get it absolutely right. And therefore, what we always have to do is, is kind of recognize our context in the conversation and in the critic criticism that we're doing, and then just kind of argue that or position ourselves in that. It's not easy because obviously in the world of social media, People are very quick to respond to, you know, you might you might put a, a review online and position yourself in that way, and then someone will come and just have a major problem with it. But I think even though that's going to happen, that's kind of how we still have to go about it because the alternative is, as I said earlier, avoiding the scrutiny. And I, I did speak to some critics who kind of fessed up that, yeah, they kind of probably tend towards not getting involved in the complexity. There were other critics who have found themselves getting involved trying to what they would call second guess a sort of me too position say on a film as a man and then finding they got it wrong and feeling a bit burned and not wanting to go there again and you know I'm kind of frustrated by that because I want to say no don't avoid it but really what we have to do is communicate about it and not try and do it in isolation I think we have to come together and share our views and respect each other's views really which is kind of what we need to do <laughs> in general yeah just in life in general uh, that's such a good point because as critics we're so used to doing our jobs on our own and being kind of solo operators but for me I, I do find it extremely valuable not just on this podcast just speaking to people generally getting different opinions not necessarily I know my opinion of a film but getting different perspectives from different walks of life particularly if that film was isn't within the realm of my personal experience do you think that critics have a responsibility to engage in all sorts of conversations with all sorts of people to help inform their work. I do. And that's another interesting point you brought up there, because again, talking to several critics, there was, it, the tendency was for people to kind of stick in their own sort of area. And, uh, you know, basically white men were talking to other white men, white critics were kind of, you know, reading other white, white critics. And I think it is really important. And again, there was one critic who sort of said, well, I, you know, admitted to kind of reading some other reviews of a film that was actually actually, you know, outside of his experience and then felt he didn't really get much from it. So said, oh, well, actually, I think that was a bit of, it felt like a bit of ghettoization and maybe I shouldn't do that, which again, I think is a real shame. I totally understand the uncertainty in play, but I think the, 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 the important message is that we don't just dip our toes in and then run away. We dip our toes in and actually start making a consistent effort to kind of just listen. Just again, like, you know, you were saying, it's like these things we kind of need to do, they're, they're indicative how we need to approach life in general, especially these days. We need to make sure 
we're not just exposed to our own little bubble and that we do kind of try and seek out very different opinions on things. But when it comes to criticism, we really have a responsibility to that. If we're going to do what, if filmmaking is going to make lots of different stories and have lots of different voices, then we have to, basically, we have to fall in with that better. And I'm not sure we're doing it just yet. Are there any specific films that came up a few times during your conversations where you felt exemplified any issues that you wanted to highlight, whether it be um, the way people were writing about something or the way people were judging other people's writing? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Promising Young Woman came up many times. Obviously came up as a, it was a really interesting gauge of how people kind of saw a sort of very Me Too film and whether or not it should be judged politically or whether or not the, you know, one critic sort of arguing that they didn't need to go anywhere near the politics of it because really it's it's not politics and it doesn't matter what it's saying and it might be getting it wrong. And I think it was quite interesting that these kind of films were causing problems for, you know, certain critics who, let's face it, this these social movements aren't speaking to but are more threatening. The issue of something like Promising Young Woman becomes really about, again, do I second guess how I'm supposed to read this because clearly this is a film that women will feel quite strongly about. But then it's not like, obviously, that every woman loved that film or or liked what it had to say. So that was a really interesting film because it just showed that it put the cat amongst the pigeons for a lot of critics, definitely. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I'm a nice guy. Are you? Do you think that when editors are commissioning for a film such as Promising Young Woman, do you think they should be ideally looking for a woman to review it? The big platforms, definitely, there need to be enough of them, national newspapers and and major national outlets. Yes, we live in an age where there's multiple media sources and people get their media from lots of different places and old school media does not have the same power in a lot of ways. But I think in terms of legitimacy and authority when it comes to criticism, it would be wrong to sort of say, oh yeah, they don't really matter anymore and you can have just as much power on an online blog. Clearly, that's not the case. So, I say that just to kind of preface the idea that I think there needs to be enough high-profile reviews of Promising Young Woman by women. And then we need a mixture of voices. You know, this is the thing. It's like we need a kind of identity matrix um, without wanting to kind of break it down into much, you know, many more distinct categories because that is the problem. We need to think of voices and perspectives as a kind of real spectrum because we all cross into different boundaries. We need to kind of just... There need to be enough voices on those bigger platforms so that there are always, you're not going to just have, as was the case for Promising Young Women, you had a lot of, of, of men doing the big reviews of that. and Or an outlet just kind of says, oh, we've got some women you know, that we can draw upon to do these reviews. There's also something about the power of having the staff writer position, um, which means, again, it's not just as simple as saying, well, in the future, we'll just have some freelance women and some, you know, other kind of demographics. We can't, it's it's got to be, we've got to recognise the power in play in these in these critical reviews, definitely. Wendy, is there anything else you wanted to highlight from your research? And also... Can the listeners read it anywhere? I haven't put it out anywhere yet, but that's 
possible that I will. And if I do, it will be my website, wendyloyd.com. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of kind of putting it up there at some point. I just have to check um, permissions and things like that. But I would say, yeah, I think it's just an interesting time. I think, you know, I've been a film critic for nearly 30 years, I realized yesterday, which was like, what? Um, and I think that's it, not possible. You're I know. So young. <laughs> How is that possible? And I, I just think to myself, this is the best time in all that time that I have been a critic because there really is, there's change happening. And I, as a woman being a critic, I feel much more empowered than I ever did to say what I want to say and to embark on this kind of research and to, to put it out there. And I think it's, it's, it's just going to be interesting that as long as we keep the conversations going, um, don't just kind of submit to a kind of numbers idea when it comes to diversity and go, oh, there are, the numbers are improving. We ha it's bigger than that. It's always bigger than that. We've seen that in so many other institutions and businesses and professions. We have to recognise that in criticism and not just stop before we've made enough progress. Thanks so much for joining us, Wendy. For our last item today, I speak to writer-director Antonetta Kuzijanovic about her stunning coming-of-age tale, Murina. Executive produced by Martin Scorsese, Murina stars Gracia Filopovic as Julia, a teenage girl who lives on a remote Croatian island with her parents. Cliff Curtis stars as a wealthy visitor whom Julia is drawn to. Here's Antonetta talking about Murina. So, Antonetta, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. I loved your film. Congratulations. And the awards. And it's your first feature. Hugely impressive. How are you feeling now that it's coming out in the UK? Oh, I'm very excited every time that film goes uh, to the audience. You know, that's why we make them and uh, to get this response and feelings and hopefully change from the audience is what really excites me. How was it in Glasgow? My actress went, unfortunately, I wasn't able to go. Uh, I have an infant at home and I love Glasgow. I'm sad I wasn't there. That's where I had my first kiss when I was 15. Oh, really? Yes. 15. Oh, same age as me, 15. Yeah, yeah. I went there for... Uh, <laughs> Tell us more about that. I went there for... Um, it was a student exchange with Rotary, like a summer school. And there was a guy from Portugal. His name was Daniel. I remember that was a, so mischievous to kiss a boy. <laughs> <laughs> they say you never forget. And there you go. No. <laughs> and that, of course, ties in with the themes of your film in many ways. You know, you have a, a teenage girl who's exploring herself. It's a fascinating film. I loved it. I think it really captures that spirit of being that age. But for the listeners who haven't seen it yet, can you describe the film for them? I wanted to really capture the resilience that we all have as young adults, you know, something that inevitably fades or I should say dies off uh, as we age and I, I thought if I could have that resilience of a 16 year old me now with all the experience and place I am in life there would be like you know, there would be no end to it so uh, that is something that it's important to remember these you know dreams and hopes and power that it's tied to that age and that's what uh, Yulia my character is uh, representing and that's what I want audience to walk away with from this movie and and she's fighting 
with that power and that strength and that desire against everything that we are fighting in our everyday life, uh, in no matter which culture. You know, it's the misogyny and chauvinism and everything that we nicely package into mentality. Well, I've read something very interesting that you said, and it was chauvinism is so deeply rooted in our society that we often mistake it for mentality. Can you expand on that a little bit? I mean, it's mostly like, you know, in the Mediterranean countries or Balkan, uh, they say like, oh, you know, they are like that. That's the relationship of man and a woman, you know. Uh, that is the way we we are raised. That is the way we are. We relate to each other. That is how it is through our the passion of the man, the submissiveness of the woman. But it's not the mentality. That's violence. It's very easily branded as mentality, so it can survive and be accepted mutually by both men and women. Yesterday, I was thinking about my new script that I'm writing, and I realized that today, because my new characters are no longer oppressed by men, no longer oppressed by chauvinism, they're not isolated, they're really in New York, uh, they're free and independent, but, and I realized in this new world where I'm placing these, these women, what would be their antagonism? And I wrote that other women are no longer a threat because men are no longer the award. And that is the the world in which I'm interested. How do you name the violence there? And what do you brand the chauvinism in that world? Can you explain um, when you said women are no longer the threat because men are no longer the award, are you saying, like the prize? Yes, because right. in Murina, you know, the woman cannot survive without the help of the man. That is really, the, the, that's just the bare logistics of their world. You know, they, they are isolated on this fisherman island where men are providing and uh, they are physically stronger. They are fighting for this survival. And then another way out of that is just another man to break that uh, pattern I, there needed to be Yulia who says I don't need a man to came out of this circle I'm gonna do it alone and if I die that's fine you know if I need to sacrifice my own life for it of course that's extreme and we are not <laughs> gonna hopefully walk that path but I'm thinking of a society in which there is no such uh, weight of needing to fight for attention of a man to save you. So, that, which is, you know, hopefully our, my society right now in New York, uh, while I'm in some other countries, it's not quite like that, <laughs> not to name them, but thinking what, how does chauvinism hide itself in those more forward society. Yulia, get up. Get up and recite the poem I wrote you. I wrote that poem for you. Hi. Hi there. 
There are so many contrasts between different societies, but there isn't a single society in the world that isn't patriarchal in some way, I would imagine, still. And that's what we're fighting against. Um, but I love the fact that you've got the mother and the daughter as two fascinating, very vivid, very different central characters. Um, but of course, there are parallels between them. What were you keen to highlight in that relationship between the two, which spoke to the different generations and how things are changing? I love these dynamics of women that are within a family because there always comes a moment in their coming of age uh, together and separately where they stop being family and just become somewhat rival women. That is a very delicate uh, and interesting dynamics and that is something that I'm building upon as well um, in my next film. I'm, I'm really trying in Morena to also speak about two different generations. Uh, one that envies the future and remorses the past and understands the complexity of the needs of her daughter but also the weight of, of her life and the daughter's life on herself. I actually feel very much close to that mother because I myself was unaware of chauvinism and I was unaware of my own feminism. I was raised in a family of very strong women where it was completely natural and normal to go after your goals, to go after your passion your impulse, your everything is meant for you. There's nothing that is not for you. And coming into the world of being a female director, or actually, let me take it back, just being director, and uh, working with such a very male-driven industry, I've had to uh, rediscover that I am a feminist and speak out for myself sometimes in a ways that I was not expecting myself to speak. I think that's interesting because that's somehow what happens with Nella. She has this, the mother, she has this strongest, most layered, most uh, challenging arc in Morina. Can you explain a bit more about the speaking out as a feminist in the film industry? I'm interested to know. You know, I tend to have very strong convictions. So I remember I used to say that something like that could never happen to me. And then, of course, exactly a month later, it happens to you. And then you like bite your thumb. And you're like, how could I say something like that? It's so wrong. And I think that happens to a lot of women, you know, especially. A, a strong woman tend to be more in denial or women in power tend to be more in denial because we brush it off. We don't linger. We don't notice. We, we are after a goal. But um, making a movie about it, I had to step back and think about my characters and through them find also my own uh, fights and confrontations. You're talking about the sexism that you've experienced and confronting. I'm not really. talking necessarily about sexism. I'm talking about just like chauvinism, chauvinism on what is she talking about? Why would she do it? Where did she come from? Who gives her the right to be there? 
We shouldn't nominate her. We should nominate her. Why is she making this movie? What is she saying? Is she attacking us? Sjedim na obali i gledam u tem. Gledam u daljinu gdje se s nebom spojaš. Kakve li tajne u njima skrivaš? Zar su to boje što pomrce bodre dok tako mirno u bunaci bivaš? Ali ja u tebe tvoje čudi pratim. I u tebe povjerenja nemam. Ja more stvarno ne znam kako da te shvatim. And Martin Scorsese has come on board as an executive producer, obviously big shot in the film world. Tell me how that came about, but also how that plays into those kind of conversations. Martin Scorsese came on board uh, when RT Features came on board because they have this wonderful fund that supports first and second time filmmakers. They just got on board right out of school <laughs> for me right out of my school. And it was very, uh, it was really great. I sat down with Martin Scorsese on my birthday in September. And uh, listen, he has only 20 minutes, 30 minutes max. So we have to really keep it tight and short. And it ended up being this wonderful conversation of nearly three hours. And we had an opportunity to talk about, you know, directing and films and actors and, uh, this process of finding your craft and your calling and movie and faith and mentality, violence, religion, and all these very juicy themes. And after I finished shooting Morena and had my first draft of edit, I shared with him that draft and probably two or three more. And we had a conversations. He gave his notes and inputs and uh, definitely gave a strong wind in the back. Um, said everybody knows best what to do for their film. You know, you you are you spend the most time with it, so it seems that no one can tell you better than what you already feeling. He just gave some very um, a soft directions, but he knew movies so well, so it was like deliberate decision to be like that, and I really compliment that. He knew every line of the movie, and that was fascinating to me. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't know all the lines of my movie talking to him. <laughs> Amazing. He's really a master. And you are a mistress, may I say, because this is just an exceptional, exceptional debut. And I'm very excited to see this one set in New York and to see how it kind of navigates that world. Is there anything else that you wanted to say from a feminist perspective, either about Marina or your work in general? It's very interesting to me that often I get this comment, oh, it's so interesting that I never thought that women directed Marina. Feels oh, really? as such a male gaze. And I, I found that fascinating. And, and I asked, well, why do you think it's male gaze? He said, well, it's the way that you're watching a young body, a female body relationship between man and a woman. It feels like such a man film, you know, the sexuality or sensuality, the nakedness, the movement. I said, no, it's not a male gaze. It, it's my gaze. And I'm a woman, you know, I'm watching the movie and I'm, 
I'm not, I'm watching life and I'm portraying it in a film. I'm portraying a, a young woman that moves like an animal. She's slithering through these sets, through the scenes, through this life. And she's uh, uh, unaware of her body. She's a child, but she's an adult. She's in this incredible shell. And that's how young women are. And that's how also other young women see them. <laughs> And uh, making a women gaze of the movie is not making an angry movie without sensuality, without sex, without naked flesh and body. That's really interesting because I was actually, if we had time, going to ask you that I thought that it was a very female gaze, even though, of course, you do see everything that you're talking about. You you linger on her body. You show the sensuality of it, but it never felt exploitative at all to me. It felt like you were just showing the reality of her. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I don't think it's exploitative. It's just that there's a new idea in the in film industry that women do not portray bodies of other women which was very interesting to me it's like oh if you show other women bodies it's a sensuality that's how men see women that seems very simplistic yes very <laughs> simplistic that is my point it's very simplistic and then another thing that i got that i was really uh, fascinated by it was in a one q a a man told me you know this is a very chauvinist film i said how so he said, you know, the, the easy test if the film is chauvinist is to see how much of the screen time female characters speak of men. Ah, so it's like the Bechdel test, sort exactly, of. Yes, exactly, yes, exactly. So I right. said, okay, so they, she says, so there you go. You know, they're mostly speaking of men and Therefore, this is a chauvinist film. It's not, they're not main characters in reality because they are in service of these men. And I said, oh, I understand your point, but when you put two characters in jail and they speak of freedom about the jail being in jail, is that not the movie about freedom and these characters? Because that's exactly what it is. They speak of the men because these are their this is their jail. This is their entrapment. So they're not speaking of men. They are speaking of how to avoid them. That is the best answer. <laughs> I love that someone tried to mansplain chauvinism to you, who's just made this really nuanced film all about it. <laughs> Great response. Thank you for sharing. Thank it. <laughs> you. Thank you. It was a wonderful interview. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Best of luck with the film. Um, enjoy your time at the Garden Cinema because I think you're doing a Q&A there. We're big fans of that place. And um, best of luck with the release. Thank you Thank so much you for so joining much. us. That was director Antonetta Kuzijanovic on her new film, Marina. Marina is available to watch in UK cinemas from April the 8th, 2022. If you're in London, look out for Q&As with Antonetta at the Curzon Bloomsbury, Cine Lumière, Genesis and our favourites, The Garden Cinema. Although I love all those cinemas. I also happen to have reviewed both Marina and True Things for Deadline Hollywood. If you'd like to read those reviews, you can find them on Deadline.com. Girls on Film is an HLA production, brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, audio producer Emma Butt, assistant producer Shania Pithia, and our principal partners, Vanessa Smith and Peter Brewer. I'm Anna Smith, and I was joined by Antonetta Kuzianovic, Wendy Lloyd, 
Ruth Wilson and Harry Woodliffe. I'll be chatting to more fantastic women again soon. Make sure you subscribe to be the first to hear our special episode about the French drama happening. Thank you, lovely listeners. Stay safe. I said, what are you doing?